all that coke, booze, smoking just stopped. And not only did it stop, but all the desire for it left me in one hit. Cocaine addiction, I tried to stop before. It just stopped, no more cocaine, no more booze, no cigarettes, no spliff, no porn, nothing. It all stopped in one go. There's no strength of willpower or determination, and I've never been tempted to return, never. So how does that happen? Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbert with Inspired. I'm really excited with our guest this week. Um, we are on holiday together in the summer at beautiful, gorgeous Lee Abbey in Devon. And uh, I heard Lewis's story and it blew my mind. It was a massive encouragement. I'm sure will be for many of you if you've been praying for a long time for someone you really love who's not making the best choices uh, to see the incredible way that God uh, broke through into his life. Anyway, if you're new to Inspired, it is about encouragement. It's about stirring faith. We're bombarded with loads of rubbish and bad news. And this completely counteracts this as we meet different people week by week who I've come across, friends. And and uh, I love the variety of people's stories. So welcome, Lewis. Lewis. Hi, Simon. Really great to be here. Yeah, fantastic. You're, so you're All Souls Langham Place and a uh, close mutual friend, Rico Tice there. He's been on the podcast. And uh, yes, I know he's interviewed you also at at church there because it's it's such an edifying uh, story of hope where things might not have been very hopeful for those who cared about you. Uh, listen, um, tell us about your background, brother. Yeah, um, well, um, I've just turned 62 and uh, I was born in Belfast. Um, and uh, when I was around one year old, my parents moved over to Canada and I stayed there till uh, I guess, almost eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and so... You know, I mostly remember just extreme weather, you know, mm-hmm. pretty good memories of school, playing in the snow, you know, looking for grass snakes, that kind of thing. And then in May 69, so I was almost it, and we moved back to Belfast, and that coincided with uh, the period known as the Troubles, you know, which actually started in um, August 69. So uh, basically there was this transition from, you know, snow and freedom of Canada to kind of rain and war of Belfast. And I was plunked down in the kind of epicenter of that, which was a place called Brookmine Street on the Shankle Road. And uh, if you've ever heard of that place, it was a pretty hairy place to be at the time, you know, during when the troubles all started up. You know, I was trying to fit in with school and stuff. I had a full Canadian accent and uh, there were no foreigners around me at all at that time. There, there weren't any foreigners in Belfast. so. The kids in school, uh, they didn't quite know what to make of me and my strange accent, you know, so they called me the Chinaman. Uh So, yeah, that was my name. That was my first nickname. You know, I was a foreigner to them, you know. So, yeah, uh, that's that's where I sort of landed, quite knowing what was going on. And um, as for the the troubles, I mean, I don't want to say too much about them because, you know, it's, it's pretty well documented, isn't it? I mean, all I can say is it was... It was kind of pretty scary and chaotic at times. And I can remember things like um, petrol bombs being made, stacked in milk crates at the top of the street because there were riots all the time. They'd just break out and you would. there's loads to see, you know. Um, there's like buses being overturned, cars set alight, you know, the army coming in, water cannons, firing rubber bullets, you know. It's all kind of exciting stuff for a young boy, yeah. And actually... When I look back on it, I mean, I know you've been in Burundi and you've had some 
pretty crazy experiences yourself, Simon. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I look back on those times in Belfast, it's almost surreal. You know, like, did that really happen? Yeah. Did you ever get that? I mean, and there's this, uh, there's this really, I love this. There's this quote. I know you love quotes as well, Simon. There's this quote by Mark Twain where he says, it's no wonder truth is stranger than fiction because fiction has to make sense, you know? And that's how I feel about Belfast in a way, you know? It was just, I just sort of think back on it and think, did that really happen? Yeah. So weird. And, but it's just part of life. You know, you get on with it, it becomes normal, and that's how it is. But there was, all I, all I can say is there was a lot of violence, and it was coming from, like, every direction at once. So... You know, you had general boy-on-boy street violence, which happens everywhere. <laughs> Belfast people, they seemed to like to fight in them days anyway. They were just, you know, I wasn't into it, but they were. And always was the possibility of literally being blown up whenever you went into town. Um, and the backdrop noise of explosions going off. And I can remember being near some pretty big bangs, actually. And my mother and my sister, for instance, they just missed being killed a couple of times and then all the shootings going on. So, I mean, just to sum it up, Belfast for me was generally survival, fear, violence, and then religion. Right. Yeah. So what part did religion play then for you and your family? Yeah, it was massive, Simon, massive. I mean, I come from an almost totally religious Christian background. So my grandfather, he was a pastor in a small church there. In Belfast, my mother played organ in the church. It was just a little mission hall with a tin roof, you know, and uh, and actually, you know, a corrugated iron roof. And and when when it rained, you couldn't hear the pastor, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, my father, uh, among other things, was a lay preacher, and he spent his time studying the Bible and theology. All my family were Christians. They're really dedicated Christians, not just churchgoers, you know. So. Those experiences of church for me, they were something I I just hated them. I I mean, I'll give you an example, Simon, on a typical Sunday, okay? I'd be dressed up in a suit and tie, really embarrassing for a young boy, you know. And uh, and then you were sent off to communion service. I was off with my parents to communion, breaking of the bread, which was like an hour long of just sitting up straight in silence, Really boring. The only thing I remember interesting was this silver goblet filled with wine. It went around. Of course, I couldn't touch it. After that, we went downstairs to the main morning service, more boredom. Then home to eat. In the afternoon, Sunday school. Then home. Then out for the evening service. Right? That's four church services. Quite intense. On a Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the only release was the occasional baptism watching grown-ups being dunked in the water or something, and <laughs> a testimony. Usually some guy who'd been an alcoholic, you know, living in the gutter, lost his money in gambling, etc., and then seen the light. So midweek, there was a Bible class I had to go to, and at one point, uh, something called the Boys Brigade. I don't know if anyone knows about them, but, yeah, yeah sort of militaristic Christian affair, marching and orders and things like that. So basically... Christianity to me was just boredom, you know. It was old ladies and bonnets and, and really and really strict behavior. That's it. I mean, I, the older I got, the more it, it started to grit on me. And uh, 
eventually around the age of 14, I think, I'd had enough. I told my parents, if they want me to go to church, they're going to have to literally carry me there. And that was that. That was the last time I set foot in a church for a long time. Hmm. And so when I was just before 16 or 16, I got into music. I was playing in bands. Then punk rock came along. I joined a band. I couldn't wait to leave Belfast. I hated it and go to London. And that's what my band did. And in March 79, uh, I was 17 years old. And I had a guitar, a small bag, and 70 quid in my pocket. And we all rocked up in London. Wow. So when, I mean, when God called me to Burundi, I arrived in the country with a couple hundred quid and thinking, oh, you've got to, Lord, you better be faithful here, you know, war-torn zone. So you, you've left Belfast, you're, you're 17, very, I'm guessing, immature, with 70 quid in your pocket, and, and you're not trusting God, but it was, it was an incredible adventure, wasn't it? What happened? Yeah, I was really immature, you're right. I, I, in fact, I was a total idiot, really. <laughs> I, um, and, and London in, in, in 1979, you know, was a whole different creature than it is now. I mean, some parts of it were almost like Dickensian. So there were six of us arrived in, in a group, plus this really crooked manager we have. And I remember we booked into a hostel room for the night with three bunk beds in it. And when I started to empty my little bag... I came across a package at the bottom, which I hadn't remembered packing. And this turns out it was a Bible. Well, my parents must have sneaked in there. And uh, actually, just even speaking about it makes me so sad and shameful. But anyway, I think it's important to say this because it plays some part in my repentance later, I believe. So I took this Bible out in full view of the other guys in the band, and I just kicked it around the room until it was just flittered in pieces, you know. Mm. And I, I remember one of the band members, not non, all non-religious, of course, he was disgusted by my actions, and I, I, but of course I didn't care because I guess this Bible represented everything I was running away from. And it was like, this Bible was like a poison to my newfound freedom. Yeah. And, and that's what I wanted, freedom, you know, no more restrictions and rules, no one to tell me what to do. I'm the boss now, kind of thing. And uh, actually, the freedom of London in those early days was really heady stuff. You know, we had so much freedom. In fact, we didn't know what to do with it. Or, I mean, rather, I, I, none of us had the imagination for it, let's say. And so I, I went to gigs. I went to some gig by a group called Crass. I remember the first gig I went to, and they were anarchists a deconstructionist. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like this seething mob. There were TV screens on either side of the band. They were playing all these images of war and violence and pornography. You know, it was crazy, really scary and exciting. I met this girl and she introduced me to the squatting scene. Because um, at the time, Simon, there were just so many empty, boarded up properties. Mm -hmm. And like little communities of punks would break in and, and live there. So it was just like girls, drugs, music, confusion. There were lots of disaffected youth, runaways from home, people who'd been abused, nutters, a huge sprinkling of perverts and some people that were totally insane. And uh, amongst all that, I met this hot Swedish punkette called Christina. We got married and it didn't last more than a year. In retrospect, I mean, I, I told you I was an idiot. I was. 
and she was just using me to get a visa. So that was that, you know. Um, I had no qualifications. I didn't even have a swimming certificate. So I was just doing odd jobs, night again, uh, building work. I was lost, really. And, and drugs were a big part of that scene. Hash and grass as a starter. And then speed was a really big one then. And some heroin come along. Anything you can get your hands on, basically, to change your reality. So um, that was kind of that early days in London. And I would only go back to Belfast, visit my parents at uh, Christmas once a year, minimum amount of time. And, uh, I, you know, I was really argumentative with them. I despised them bringing up the subject of God to me, really despised it. I was really vicious in my responses. And one time, I mean, my mother reminded me of this, that I was um, talking to my father and he was obviously trying to tell me about God or Jesus or something. And I said to him, if Jesus was in front of me right now, I'd shoot him in the face. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I went to extremes, you know, and uh, of course there'd be lots of tears and, so over the years, this hatred of Christianity kind of morphed into total indifference. So eventually, I, I stopped the arguments. I had a, a really low regard for Christianity, so low. I felt sorry almost for somebody who could be so stupid to believe this nonsense. It was like somebody trying to convince me of Father Christmas. And so I banned my family from even mentioning Christianity to me in the early days. And then Christianity completely disappeared from my life altogether. And from then on, there's too much to say, really. There's too many stories. Just wild years and no point in getting into it. Um, so I think the later part of my life, from about 45 years old onwards, was the time that I got into things that I can't really talk about on the podcast. I'm sorry. And I know you know some of these things and... I would like to, and some of my friends know most of the stories, and my closest friends know all the stories. But my lifestyle wasn't exactly above board. I was doing things I'm not proud of. There were lots of criminal activities going on. I remember I gave my testimony in All Souls to, I was interviewed by Rico Tice, and uh, I told the congregation listening that if they could think of Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, then I probably made him look like a choir boy, you know. So the thing about that lifestyle is it gave me the things that I wanted, which were freedom, independence, and cash money. So then I turned 50. Um, I took up classical piano lessons. I was doing that for around five years. And so by the time I was 55 years old, I was living this life, a kind of criminal life, but I'd be doing my art. I paint. I'm an artist. I would paint pictures. I'd be playing piano. I'd be going on long trips abroad. And, um, you know, I spent a total of three years in Cambodia and Laos and places like that, for instance. I was free to do whatever I wanted, to buy what I wanted. I had a large group of friends, or so I thought. And life seemed pretty good. I should say a really important thing to say is that my life was drug-fueled. So I was addicted to cocaine at this stage. I used to use it every day. Morning to night, I, I would just self-medicate, basically. I drank really heavily. 
I smoked grass and cigarettes without a break, morning to night, watched porn. That was my life. That part never varied. It was always, it was a constant thing. Um, For decades you're talking there. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in the the decade before I, I got saved, I think that cocaine really came in then and into my life at least. And uh, so it, it, and I was the sort where I, I kind of could, I had, you know, moments of just really going crazy on it. And, but other times I would just keep it level. I mean, I could have died many times. I've OD'd, I've been carted off in the ambulance, you know. I'm really blessed to still be alive, you know. Yeah, and obviously you must, because you were so uh, wealthy and you didn't get caught, you must have been a really brilliant criminal because I, I you know, you shared some of the stuff uh, off the record with me and it's it's mind-blowing what you could get away with. And, and normally the story is I was in crime and then I got caught and spent 10 years in the slammer and, and then in my cell turned to Christ. But that wasn't your story, was it? No, exactly, Simon. That's right. Um, I mean, I wasn't. I, I wasn't making tons and tons of money. In fact, if you go above a certain level in terms of making money, it's like sticking your head above the parapet, and you are um, a target then for other criminals and things. So, I was. I kind of kept things on a certain level, but I made my money and I lived like I wanted. You know, so, I mean, see, all that freedom, it, it comes with a whole lot of problems as well. And my main plan for the future was was not a house and stuff. My main plan for the future was suicide. Hmm. Yeah, not immediately. I wasn't planning on killing myself or anything, but it was, was kind of like my pension scheme was death. I knew that it didn't go anywhere further than that, so I didn't want to – I knew I was either going to get caught or – or or or, or die, of not, uh, die of drug overdose or something, or something was going to go wrong. I just thought, well, death would be the way, you know. And from I, I, I'm a complete atheist at this point, so you know, from my point of view, death it, it was the end. There was no spirit life, no ghosts, nothing weird, no afterlife, you know, no reincarnation. Everything was straightforward. We live, we die, it's lights out. But what I had a problem with when it came to death was this idea of dying and not having any answers because I was curious about the world. And I mean, not even knowing how our story, not just my story, but the whole story of human life as a species was going to turn out. You know, it was like watching a box set, a great box set, and you're on series seven out of 10, and then it just disappears. Hmm. I I just thought this was awful, that it might be completely meaningless. It was slightly horrifying. Uh, Also, the idea of never seeing another sunrise or tree. Um, And then you had these people like Eastern religion sort of people, you know, death is this wonderful, natural thing. We should embrace it, you know. Uh, This new age nonsense of melting in with the universe and becoming part of the earth again. I just thought that was more ridiculous than religion, actually. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Tim Keller, that great pastor and writer who died recently, there was a meme going around after that, after he died, quoting him. And I I sort of wrote it down because I thought, yeah, that says it. He said, when some people say, well, when you die, it's just over. There's nothing to be afraid of. My response is, well, what you're saying is that death is the end of love. And you're telling me not to dread that. 
give me a break. If I know there's love on the other side of death, I can face it. If I know there's infinitely greater love, then I can really face it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, at that stage, Simon, I had no idea of Christians like Tim Keller or Christian philosophers or anything. I just had this pathetic, simplistic nursery school idea of religion. You know, the silly bearded man in the sky. And I thought I knew what Christians believed in, but I had no idea at all. I mean, I really had no idea at all. And I'd grown up with Bible and stuff like that, but I had no idea what Christians actually, Christianity was all about. So anyway, that brings me up to late February 2017. At this stage, I'm 55 years old. And then it happened. Then my life changed. And this... I suppose is what I just find so unbelievably encouraging because there are people in my life that I've been praying for for decades who are, who are very close and you know and some I've prayed for a few decades and they come to faith and, and some haven't yet but what your story just fills me with such hope is is how God can just break into any situation I, I picture you are you going to share it on your, your piano with your cigar and fine bottle of wine and uh, you know living the life gone fill us in <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of about right. I mean, actually, my story is a very unusual story, and I get that. And it's it's a great testimony to have. But I haven't been telling it to many people lately because I kind of get the feeling it's like a party trick or something that you bring out, and I, I don't want it to be that. No. And, um, you know, it's it's very real. And it's not just a great story. It's it's really what happened. Um, so, and if anyone, you know, comes to faith just by going into church and gradually becomes a Christian, that's fantastic as well. There's nothing, you know, my story doesn't mean it's anything better than anyone else's. I don't want to say that anyway, but sure. okay. But getting back to the story. So here's how it happened. Um, really ordinary day like any other. It's February, 2017. I wake up, I come downstairs. Um, I was looking at the painting that I was working on, thinking about it. Uh, went, go into the kitchen, put some coffee on. And then I decided I wanted to play some piano. So I, I sat down and started going through this really limited repertoire. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm terrible. I, I've stopped playing now, but I was terrible at it. But I remember that day was really unusual because I was playing quite well for my level. And also the piano was in really great temperament. Um, and so while I was playing, I, my last thought really was, I, I clearly remember thinking this, I, my last thought was, wow, this is going really well. And then right in the middle of the piece, after thinking that, I just stopped playing. I put my hands flat on the keyboard and uh, I just burst into tears. Um, and I don't normally cry. I do now. After being saved, I cry all the time. <laughs> I'm trying not to cry now, actually. But I don't normally cry unless somebody really close has died or something truly awful happens. And then I cry only for a little bit, and then I stop. It's like a tap turns off. But this time, I cried for well over an hour, I think maybe an hour and a half. And um, I've never cried like that before, and I cried so much, in fact, that my eyes were just hurting. They felt like they were on fire. You know, as if somebody poured chili sauce into your eyes, really painful, really painful. And it was 
only after an hour or so that I realized what I was actually doing, that I was crying, but not only had I been crying, but also I'd been talking all that time and speaking and saying over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. God, forgive me, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know? So you have to realize, Simon, this is a pretty strange thing for an atheist to be doing. Yeah. I'm talking to God. I had this image in my mind, and I'm wondering now, does this relate back to me 40 years ago kicking that Bible around the room? Because I had this image in my head, a kind of feeling that I treated God like an animal and I kicked him into a corner. And I felt, you know, just the awfulness of that, the weight of my actions, you know, what I'd done. Just It just hit me in this really heavy way, just overwhelmed me, you know, with sorrow. So I sort of came out of this knowing that God exists. There was no dispute in my mind. I mean, I went from a total atheist to um, knowing that God exists. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't think I was. I was just like a theist, I guess. And I was a bit disturbed about it. I didn't know what to do about it. And I was a wee bit embarrassed. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, Max, called around that day. And I told him, I told him what had happened in a really embarrassed way, as if you know, I was declaring I'd murdered somebody. I was sort of said, uh, Max, you know, something happened to me. I kind of, you know, sort of, in a way, well, I believe in God. <laughs> and, and I remember, he, he, bless him, he looked at me and he said, that's all right, Lewis. <laughs> he just thought, yeah, that's all right. You know, big deal. And so I was wondering all day, what, what, what should I do about this? You know, should I go to a church? Uh, and then I thought, well, why should I be a Christian just because my parents are Christians? I mean, it seems so obvious. Why should I just follow that? And then I remembered my great-grandfather from my father's side. They'd come over from Russians. They were Russian Jews. So I've got that side of my family, and he changed his name by deed poll from something like Cherinsky to Lewis because, you know, there was a stigma at the time of, of being Jewish. So I thought, well, maybe I can tie this up. Maybe I can become a Jew or a Hindu even, or even, even better maybe, Eastern Orthodox because as an artist, that religion had beautiful churches. You know, they have gorgeous icons and... Uh, as an artist, you know, I fancied some of that. So anyway, I set about investigating how to become a Jew. And it turns out it's a really difficult process. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard, actually. I mean, you've got to study up on their religion and their culture. You've got to talk to a rabbi. You've got to go to Judaism 101 classes. You've got to get, uh, you've got to get circumcised. Ouch. And then you've got to face a rabbinic court. You got to get this ritual bath, and then you get yourself a Hebrew name. I mean, I looked at it. I thought, you know, to be honest, it'd be easier to get into university or something. So, <laughs> yeah, honestly, it was just so difficult. I it, I was sort of a bit crestfallen actually. But and then Hinduism, it, it wasn't quite as difficult, but there was this process. And then Orthodox, I just couldn't make out how to get into it. it just seemed confusing. I couldn't work it out. Um. So anyway, I go to bed that night, and the next morning, I wake up with some really odd words just circling around my brain in a loop. And um, I don't know, Simon, have you ever woken up with like a phrase or something from a pop song? Yeah. One that you really hate, and it's going around your head, and you can't 
It was like that. It was like these words were on repeat, going round in a circle. There were four words, hardening of the heart, hardening of the heart, hardening of the heart, round and round. It was really annoying me, and I couldn't even think what they were, what they mean. I mean, you got to admit, they're strange words, yeah? Yeah. It's not like I woke up with something like, Jesus is Lord, or you must be born again. No, it was hardening of the heart. Um, so it was driving me crazy, and I did what anyone would do. I typed it into the Google search bar. And uh, so what came up was some medical condition, um, but there was also a Bible verse from John twelve forty, And I looked it up, and it said, this verse said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Um, so I looked at this verse. It was intriguing, and I connected it with the fact that I'd come to God, and I thought, well, there's something going on here, obviously. Why would I wake up with these words? And why would these words come from the Gospel of John? And I did, but I didn't understand what that verse meant. So I typed in to YouTube search bar this time, John 12, verse 40. And loads of videos come up, sermons, tons of them, you know, hundreds. So I just started scrolling through them and I just clicked one, you know, randomly, bang, hit play. And so this sermon, turns out it was a pastor. His name was Steve Carr. He's an old guy. And he is a pastor in a little Calvary Chapel church in Arroyo Grande in California. Um, and the sermon was titled, Why People Do Not Believe. And at the time, this video had like eight likes or something like that, mm -hmm. or eight watches, eight views. So it was a really obscure video. Um, and I watched this sermon, and in it, the pastor talked about a guy just like me who'd come from a religious family, but he had no time for God. And the pastor had met this guy. He was a young fellow. He met him on the street, and he was sort of trying to, you know, evangelize him. And this young man refused to listen to the message. And the pastor was saying how dangerous it was to hear this message and dismiss it. And he said that if you continue like this, God could harden your heart, kind of put a lid on you and say, okay, we're done. So... This news really scared me. I thought, I wondered how this message was going to help me. I mean, had God, had God gone to all this trouble, making me break down at the piano, giving me this dream of these words just to say, I'm done with you? I, that couldn't be. So I watched all the sermon, and while I was watching it, something just clicked in me. And at the end, the pastor said to his congregation, well, he said a kind of sinner's prayer, or, or what was it called, an altar call? Mm -hmm. And I just watched it yesterday and wrote down what he said. So this is what I heard. I'll just repeat what I heard. He said, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, right where you sit this morning, all that can change. All you have to do is call out to him, call upon his name, ask for forgiveness, Invite Jesus to come in and take over your life, and he will dramatically, radically change you. He'll forgive you of all your sins. He'll empower you to follow him. Do you want that? If you do, then pray with me right now. Just say these words in your heart to him. He will heal you. Just acknowledge him right now. Say, I'm a sinner. I've broken your laws. Forgive me. Jesus, come in. Take over my life. I want to follow you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit right now and change my life. So I just got on my knees and prayed along with this mm -hmm. in my room.
And when I got up, it wasn't like, hallelujah, I'm born again or something. I don't know what I felt, actually. I wasn't sure. Something had changed, but I wasn't sure. It wasn't like some great, you know, awakening and light dawned on me. But the next morning, I went to bed. So my, see what I mean? My testimony takes a while to say. The next morning, just before I woke up, I was dreaming. And in the dream, I was in this space just filled with light. There was no walls, no floors, no ceiling. It was just me. And there were three women watching me in a kind of bemused wonder. And I was joking around with them. And I was laughing and laughing and laughing. That's all that was going on in the dream, right? I've never in my life and never since felt so much joy. Mm. It was just beautiful. I can't tell you what happened. Nothing happened. I was just with these three women. I was just wrapped up in joy. And I was just laughing with joy. And I transitioned from that dream of laughing to my waking state on my bed in my room. And I woke up on my side laughing. I actually woke up laughing. Mm. And my pillow was soaked with tears. And I opened my eyes and... uh, And the light was coming in from the blinds, I remember. And it was an early morning, orangey light. It was beautiful. And I went downstairs and I walked out on the balcony and I looked out and I just had perfect peace. It was truly miraculous, you know. I was, you know, I mean, I'm getting getting pretty uh, choked up talking about it, but it was like I was utterly in love suddenly. And, uh, you know, so... I don't have to get a hold of myself here. Anyway, I come across I came across this quote from an American missionary called E. Stanley Jones a bit later and that perfectly summed up this moment for me. He said he said, When I first met Jesus, I felt like I'd swallowed sunshine. Hmm. And that's what it was like. It was like swallowing sunshine, you know. So um that was that was me, that's how I became a Christian that came to faith, you know. Yeah, well, that's beautiful, Lewis. And um, so, you know, what were the after effects of conversion? How did you get plugged in? Yeah, that, in a way, that's the real surprise, actually, because you know, I had to, I had this honeymoon period, what Christians call a honeymoon period, when God's really blessing you and everything's going well, and that lasted quite a while for me. I'd say about nine months or something. And I was just so filled with the spirit. It was just overflowing in me. It was like being young and in love for the first time. We, he want to tell all your friends about it. You want to bore your friends talking about this girl or something. Mm-hmm. Notice their eyes are rolling. And it, it actually, it wasn't all pure joy, to be fair. There was quite a lot of soul searching. There's struggling with how it all fits together, trying to understand it. But mostly it was incredible joy. And I think... You would know this as a Christian. You realize as a Christian there's a difference between pleasure and joy, don't you? I mean, there's a quote by Malcolm Muggeridge where he says, I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness. Mm. And I had done that. I mean, I mean, pleasures are obviously pleasurable, but they don't last. And they're temporary. The reason they're temporary is because they're tied into this temporary source they're tied into you, your feelings, the world, or 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 what, or the drug, or whatever. Whereas joy, this kind of joy, it comes from an eternal source. It comes from God the Father. So it's on a completely different level. You're plugged into an eternal source, and that 
so I mean the joy I mean sometimes it's not exuberant and overflowing sometimes it's it can be just small and quiet it just sits inside you you know and bubbles up now and again but it's always there like the mustard seed of faith or something like that it's just always there and remember Simon remember I was into drugs immediate pleasure all of that and a lifetime of that just stopped in one moment for me all of it I mean can you imagine that Simon can you imagine that all that coke booze smoking just stopped and not only did it stop but all the desire for it left me in one hit cocaine addiction you know cocaine addiction I tried to stop before it just stopped no more cocaine no more booze no cigarettes no spliff no porn nothing it all stopped in one go. Um, I mean, some of my friends would say, uh, you know, my non-Christian friends would say to me, I've got to give it to you, Lewis. Well done for, you know, kicking the drugs. I couldn't have done that. And I had to reply, I didn't do anything. You know, I tried several times to stop, but I never could. I didn't do a thing. There's no strength of willpower or determination. It was literally done to me. And I've never been tempted to return, never. So how does that happen, Simon? You know, is there any psychiatrist out there who could take away all your desire in an instant, never to return? I don't think so. I don't think so. That that's that's a miracle. That is a true miracle. And I, you know, I'd like people to you know who don't believe to explain how that happens. Mm. Everything in one hit, and no desire for it, like no hankering, thinking, oh, I just wish I could just have another wheat line of coke. Or no, gone. All of it gone as if it never existed in the first place. That's yeah. incredible, you know. Yeah. Um, so and yeah, and then there was like a reaction from my friends. So I had all these friends, and uh, I had some pretty awful reactions from my so-called friends. Not all of them, but I lost most of my friends really quickly. You know, I mean, I, I can't blame them really because if it was me, I, I'd probably done the same thing because I didn't like Christianity, so I, I can't blame them. No, I remember one very close friend of mine, when I told him my testimony, you know, what had happened to me, what I just told you, actually, he looked at me and he said, sorry to hear about that. Mm. He was angry about it and he didn't want to know me anymore. And then another friend told me that she didn't want my sort coming around her and her friends polluting the atmosphere, like I'd become some sort of disease. Mm. And what made it so awful, though, was... I was brimming with happiness. So I was no longer addicted to drugs or drinks or anything, and all that left me. And you'd think it'd be good news, but I guess that didn't matter. In fact, that woman who said, you know, she didn't want me to come around polluting, she did eventually meet up with me, and she actually wanted to know what had happened to me. She's really smart, this woman, really smart as a whip. And she was really grilling me about it. What do you mean? You know, explain yourself. What do you mean by that dream and exactly what happened? She wanted to know. She was really at me about it. Uh, it reminded me, you know, that time in John's Gospel, Jesus healed the blind man mm-hmm. and the Pharisees and the religious authorities were really giving him a hard time, wanting to know how it happened and explain yourself and where is this guy stuff. And then the, the blind man in exasperation says, look, one thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were come some pretty awful uh, falling outs, um, but a few good old friends stuck it out with me. One of them, when I told him the story of my testimony, he listened, and then he he thought about it and he said, "You know what's happened to you, mate? 
you've had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> so I was laughing because I was saying, well, I'm still having it six and a half years later. Yeah, but their reaction is understandable because actually I've got to say, I spent almost all my life as a non-Christian, you see. So to from an outside point of view, I've got to say that actually Christianity is pretty square, which, which I accept now, and I even like it. I mean, I'm glad it's not full of hipsters checking out each other's clothes and coming out with cynical comments and stuff. So I'm really happy to hang out with Christians. In fact, when I got saved, I had this intense, really intense magnetic attraction to other Christians. I just had to be near them, and I still do. I just love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love them. And also, have you noticed, Simon, I don't know if you noticed this, but, uh, you know, I came from this side of dope smoking, get high, talk about trippy things and philosophy and the cosmos. Uh, Now that I'm a Christian, Christians are like that. They're happy to talk about philosophy and experience beyond the norms. I find conversations are much, much more interesting now Hmm. uh, with Christians. Uh, The people that you see in the street and you think, oh, it's just some old deer, you know who's not going to be uh, interested in that sort of thing. But actually they are, they're more interested than than, um, non-Christians. So um, I remember it was a few months in, I got home, I was watching a movie upstairs. I suddenly had this overwhelming urge to pray. So I got on my knees as usual and I went, you know, you, you, you get on your knees and you say, God, Heavenly Father or Lord Father. But this time nothing came out. I was just held. I mean, I was held in silence. Everything just stopped. And I was in a kind of stasis. I couldn't even think about what was happening. I couldn't reason. I couldn't use, well, I couldn't use my words mentally. So I was just being held. And I felt the presence of God holding me still. And it lasted for quite a while. Like God was with me. I wasn't in control. It's really beautiful, very odd, very hard to describe properly, of course. I was just held. Anyway, Sunday came along and I go to church and there was a couple of really old dears, you know, old Christian ladies with the gray hair that's been permed and they're about 90 and they've got all their finery on. Lovely old couple that I know. And uh, they said, oh, how are you doing? You know, what's what's going on? And I I started to tell them about what I just told you, this story. And I'd I'd only just started telling them. And immediately they said, oh, you were in the presence of God. You're really blessed. And so, you know, nothing is too cosmic or weird and trippy for these old gray-haired dears. (laughs) You were talking about. And, uh, And they were overjoyed. And they recognized it. Oh yeah, you were in the presence of God, and it was it was wonderful. Actually, I haven't had that happen quite like that again, because usually my mind sort of kicks in, my um, you know critical faculties, and you're you're aware of yourself. You're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm being held by God, or you know, God is. But I wasn't. I was just stopped and held, and it was a very strange, very beautiful, very pure um, moment of meeting with God without me being in control of anything mm-hmm. and just God holding me. And, and so there's this connection. It's, just, it's a couple of years back. I tried my hand as an Uber driver for a while, right? and that was a real eye-opener. I had some really interesting conversations there, and, and I had some really scary times as well. Like, you know, I was actually hijacked by a couple of big Albanians once, but that's another story. But I'll just relate this one time. It was at night, and I picked up, 
a passenger. She was an old lady, and I had to take her home. And it was about a twenty mile, twenty minute rather ride away. And so she got in the car. We greeted each other, you know, said hello, and then the whole journey was in silence. And all the time I was driving, I was thinking about the prayers that had recently been answered for me. Uh, it's just incredible. I was just thinking, wow, God has answered so many prayers for me. And I was also thinking about the way he does it, you know, that sort of oblique roundabout way that God goes about things. And I was just thinking how wonderful it all is. So that was my thought process, driving silently. And I pull up at the destination and I, I just turned around and said something like, well, you know, here we are, good night. And uh, she opens up the door and then she hesitates and she says, Sorry, I know this sounds weird, but I just have to say that that was the best taxi ride I ever had. Hmm. Uh, she said, not only did you get here quickly, and I was driving slow, I think, but there was, she said there was a kind of lovely atmosphere in the car. Hmm. And I said, sorry if that sounds weird, but I felt I just had to tell you. And I said, oh, thanks. It's really sweet of you to say so. And she said, well, I just needed to tell you. So anyway, good night. And I said, yeah, good night and God bless. And then she stopped again when I said, God bless. And she said, I remember a word. She said, oh, you're familiar with these words? And I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And she closed her eyes. And I automatically closed mine. And she prayed, you know, dear God, bless this man. Keep him safe from driving, et cetera, et cetera. She just came out with this big prayer, you know. And there I was thinking just before that, you know, how God answers prayers and does things in a weird way. And so she was just praying for me and my eyes were just brimming with tears. When she left and got out of the car, I was in bits, you know. Mm. I said, you know, Simon, where else does that happen in that way? Yeah. Do Jews, do Jews and Muslims and Buddhists get that kind of thing happening? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, we share the same Holy Spirit. We're in relationship with God, so there's a connection with other Christians. So, yeah, it's not a incredible story and as such but it had a real effect on me it was just so beautiful yeah. like such love in it hi folks i hope 2024 has got off to a good start i think most of you know this podcast comes out on the auspices of great lakes outreach working in burundi which is still annoyingly the hungriest and poorest country in the world and there are so many positives i mean i, I look, look back at last year see that we've impacted a couple of hundred thousand people in a very meaningful way. I've got all these lovely photos of prostitutes that we've helped get out of prostitution, giving them a new skill as tailors. I think of street kids that we've helped get off the streets. I think of microfinance loans that we've given out to poorest of the poor people, mainly widows who have managed to start up businesses and, and are now thriving, being lifted out of poverty. Mud huts that have been able to knock down and build sort of brick houses with a tin roof and a door that can be locked to actually protect these vulnerable ladies. So many people have come into relationship with Jesus, come to faith. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. In that context, at the same time, there have been 40% food price rises of basic foodstuffs, and there have been five hikes in the last three months of fuel, which just adds up to crippling inflation that affects everybody. It's so challenging. So if you want to back us, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it, you you sewing into the work. And that's so you can go do that at greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. We'd love it for you to journey with us. Greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. And keep enjoying the podcast. Now let's get back to it. And Lewis, hey, I'm itching to hear, um, you know, your family. What, what happened? How did they react? 
My family, that was amazing. I mean, my, my father, at the point when I got saved, my father was, um, he had Alzheimer's at that point, and he was pretty deeply into it. So, you know, you couldn't have a conversation with him. Basically, he wouldn't know who you were, that kind of thing. He didn't know who his, my mother was, his wife, for all his life. You know, he was, um, he was just, he was in that state. And uh, the shame was that, you know, I, he wasn't there. In a way, he couldn't know that I was saved because he'd been praying all his life for that. My mother and my sister were just overjoyed, you mm. know, joyed. I mean, it brought us all together. So um, not only, you know, did I join the family of God, but my joined my whole family again, just came together in pure love. And uh, we've got a relationship. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. And I'll tell you, my father, you know, every time I rang up home, it'd be my mother would answer because my father, you couldn't get on the phone with them. You know, it's, it's just a hopeless case. And I rang my mother just after I got saved. And my father said he wanted to speak to me on the phone. And my mom said he just wants to speak to you. And he got on the phone and he spoke to me coherently, a back and forth conversation, not just a one way thing. He listened and he answered and he asked and listened and answered. And he asked me and I told him about that I'd been saved. And he was just overjoyed. That lasted for about half an hour in his life, and then he went back to where he was. Beautiful. But for half an hour, that's another miracle, you know? You know, in fact, that guy who said to me after I told him my testimony, that friend of mine who said, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that, I told him also about my father and what happened, and he said, oh, well, these things happen. Hmm. You know, nothing, nothing was getting through to him, but my family, it was just, it was a wonderful connection, reconnection, with them. And I suppose the other aspect of having this really sudden change, you know, from going from one extreme to another was how the mind and the body adjust to a kind of radically different life. It's almost physical. You know, you've got, you've gone from all that drug and all that craziness to suddenly clean living Christian. And there was this intense period of dreams for about three months. I've never experienced anything approaching them ever. There were dark, satanic dreams, demons, sex. There was everything in there. Um, and there was even, maybe I've got time to tell you, there was this vision of hell. I mean, remember my dream of heaven with them three women? Mm. This was like the polar opposite. I don't believe I was in hell, by the way. I was in this dream. It was like a vision. I was in this huge chamber, like an underground cave the size of a football pitch or something. And I was entirely alone. There was, no, there was this feeling of just pure dread. There was no one there, no monsters, no demons, no flames, nothing, just me and this feeling of existential dread and abject aloneness. And it was as if the presence of life and God had just left me. And it was without doubt the scariest dream I've ever had. And I've had some real crazy nightmares in my life, believe me. But this was the worst thing ever. And I remember willing myself out of this into waking life with a struggle. And when I awoke, I grabbed a Bible and I just held it to my chest. You know, it was like three in the morning or something. I was really disturbed and I was praying, dear Jesus, help me in Jesus' name, help me. You know, like the exorcist or something in the name of Jesus. Mm. You know, I was too scared to go back to sleep. So, you know, and I'll remember that as long as I live. And it makes sense to me, actually, that hell would be like that. Because hell is a separation from the presence of God. And if God is love, God is life and light, 
you take those things away. It's just awful. And so this idea of hell from Dante or the medieval artists, the guy with the thorns, the pitchfork, I think it's nonsense. I actually think hell is real. Hell is separation from God, and that is something to be feared. But if you don't want anything to do with God, basically, if you want to go your own way, God won't force you into heaven. He's going to honor your free will and choices. But I never want to experience anything like that again. I think people actually, Simon, I actually think that people that don't believe in God, that walk around and they don't realize that God is here, he's there. Somehow he's still with them, he's still in the world. And if you take that away, you don't realize what you, what's going to happen, yeah. how awful that is going to be. So, yeah, I guess that's, that's that. Yeah. yeah. So we're running out of time, Lewis, but, you know, what does your life look like now? Well, I, I, as you know, I go to All Souls Langham Place where John Stott used to preach. That's where I met Rico Tice, and I know you, you – well, you've done a podcast with him, so you know him well. He was incredibly kind to me. Uh, he, I'd, I'll never forget what he did for me. Uh, really crucial early days. He was always on hand. He introduced me to those courses, you know, Christianity Explored that he does, which are an excellent way to learn, ask questions, meet others. Um, I joined a fellowship group. I went to Bible studies. I was watching around four or five sermons a day. <laughs> <laughs> you really, seriously, every day, reading tons and tons of books, just hoovering up theology in the Bible. I haven't stopped, actually. It just gets deeper and deeper. So, yeah, life is, it's not great. It's hard being a Christian. It's really hard. I would say... You're, you're, not, you're paying the bills now, not by selling coke amongst other things, but by uh, selling your yeah. artwork, is it? Well, uh, various things. As I said, I did a, a job for Uber, mm. and I've done various things, you know. So I'm, I'm struggling, actually, Simon. I'm really struggling. Um, you know, I, no more, you know, 100-pound bottles of wine and, you know, big cigars for me. That's gone, you know. And no regrets. <laughs> Oh, no regrets, you know, no regrets. Um, so I would just say, final thoughts. I mean, if you're not a Christian and you think you know something about it, think again. So if you're the person who's had really bad experiences with religion or churches or even Christians, actually, forget about it, okay? I want to say I don't follow a church. I don't follow religion or a pastor. I'm actually not religious, Christianity is not essentially a moral religion, actually, although it has morals. If you want to know about Christianity, read about Jesus in the Gospels. Just read it. Read the Gospel of John, Mark. It's a, you, know, you can finish it in a couple of hours. Just read about Jesus. Not Forget about Christians. Read about Jesus, what he taught, how he acted, how he loved, how he led a sinless life, how humble he was. Okay, this is a real historic figure. It's been firmly established. He was tried by Pontius Pilate, crucified, and he did rise again. You might read it and think this is a load of nonsense. Fine. But read it. Just decide for yourself. Don't let religion and man get in your way. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus, with God. And here's the thing. God really does love you, no matter what you've done and who you are. He wants to share himself with you. And, you know, he loves you so much, in fact, that he gives his son to die for your sins. So God is not a sky daddy. He's not a guy in the sky with a beard. It's important to have the correct understanding of God. Find out from the source documents. 
okay? Just read it. Two hours, read it. And yeah, being a follower of Christ isn't easy. It can be a real struggle because you've got this battle with sin and stuff. But it's freedom. It's true freedom. And I'll just end by saying really quickly also for those who are out there who are they're praying for a family member or a friend, and if it looks hopeless, if you love them, don't give up. You know, my mother was praying for me for 55 years, 55 years, bless her. And I was, by all, all means, I was a lost cause. Um, and I found out also that just after being saved, my sister, who regularly prayed for me anyway, had this real burden for me. And the week before my conversion, she was praying and fasting and crying her eyes out. So look, just keep praying and leave it to God. He'll take care of it. And that's it. Thanks, Lewis. Well, I am praying, and you're not going to tell people you're fasting, but I mean, that's fasting is part of the journey when you're crying out for people that you care about who are making bad choices and you're just longing for them to experience the amazing grace that you've experienced. And so, thank you for being encouraging to me. I know you've encouraged many other people. Are you happy for me to put your email in the blurb if people want to be in touch with you? Yeah, definitely. If anyone wants to be in touch or ask any questions, please do. And if I can't answer them, I'll put them on to yeah. somebody does not. Yeah. Great. Maybe one day, yeah, those uh, some more of the crazy stories that you couldn't share, you'll be allowed to share. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because what an unbelievable um, what a sequence of stories that we've had, we, have, we have to edit out as part of the mix. But it's been beautiful hearing this, uh, and I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks, Lewis. Bless you. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. Guys, wonderful, isn't it? Um, uh, I'd love it if you've enjoyed this, which I, I know you have, to, to share it with people who you think will also want to hear it. They'll be encouraged and inspired. If you want to give us a great review, that would be appreciated on Spotify, iTunes. You can be with, in touch with me at simongilbert.com. And I want to thank, as always, Adam Thomas Steer for the editing, Mike Sandyman for the mixing. Next week, another fantastic story for another one of my mates, completely different because they're all different. Um, and in the meantime, have a great week. God bless you and toodaloo.